Section One of Fabiola by Nicholas Patrick Cardinal Wiseman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Part First, Peace, Chapter One, The Christian House. It is on an afternoon in September of the year three o two that we invite our reader to accompany us through the streets of Rome. The sun has declined and is about two hours from his setting. The day is cloudless and its heat has cold so that multitudes are issuing from their houses and making their way toward caesar's gardens on one side or solace on the other to enjoy their evening walk and learn the news of the day but the part of the city to which we wish to conduct our friendly reader is that known by the name of campus martius it comprised the flat alluvial plain between the seven hills of older rome and the tiber before the close of the republican period this field once left bare for the athletic and warlike exercises of the people had begun to be encroached upon by public buildings. Pompey had erected in it his theatre. Soon after, Agrippa raised the Pantheon in its adjoining baths, but gradually it became occupied by private dwellings, while the hills in the early empire, the aristocratic portion of the city, were seized upon for great edifices. Thus the Palatine, after Nero's fire, became almost too small for the imperial residence and its adjoining Circus Maximus. The Esculine, was usurped by Titus's pass, built on the ruins of the Golden House, the Aventine by Caracalla's, and at the period of which we write, the Emperor Diocletian was covering the space sufficient for many lordly dwellings by the erection of his Thermae, or the Quirinal, not far from Sallust's garden, just alluded to. This particular spot in the Campus Martius, to which we will direct our steps, is one whose situation is so definite that we can accurately describe it to any one acquainted with the topography of ancient or modern Rome. In Republican times there was a the large square space in the Campus Martius, surrounded by boarding, and divided into pens, in which comitia, or meeting of the tribes of the people, were held, for giving their votes. This was called the septa, or ovio, from its resemblance to a sheepfold. Augustus carried out a plan, described by Cicero, in a letter to Atticus, of transforming this homely contrivance into a magnificent and solid structure. The Septa Julia, as it was thenceforth called, was a splendid portico of one thousand by five hundred feet, supported by columns and adorned with paintings. Its ruins are clearly traceable, and it occupied the space now covered by the Doria and Verospi palaces, running thus along the present Corso, the Roman College, the Church of St. Ignatius, and the Oratory of Caravita. The house to which we invite our reader is exactly opposite, and on the east side of its edifice, including in its area the present church of St. Marcellus, whence it extended back towards the foot of the Quirinal Hill. It is thus found to cover, as noble Roman houses did, a considerable extent of ground. From the outside it presents but a blank and dead appearance. The walls are plain, without architectural ornament, not high, and scarcely broken by windows. In the middle of one side of this quadrangle is a door, an antis, that is, merely relieved by a tympanum, or triangular cornice, resting on two half-columns. Using our privilege as artists of fiction, of invisible ubiquity, we will enter in with our friend, or shadow, as it would have been anciently called. Passing through the porch, on the pavement of which we read with pleasure, in mosaic, the greeting, salve, or welcome, we find ourselves in the atrium, or first court of the house, surrounded by a portico, or colonnade. In the center of the marble pavement, a soft warbling jet of pure water 
brought by the Claudian aqueduct from the Tusculan hills, springs into the air, now higher, now lower, and falls into an elevated basin of red marble, over the sides of which it flows in downy waves, and before reaching its lower and wider recipient, scatters a gentle shower on the rare and brilliant flowers placed in elegant vases around. Under the portico we see furniture disposed, of a rich and sometimes rare character, couches inlaid with ivory and even silver, tables of oriental woods, bearing candelabra, lamps, and other household implements of bronze or silver, delicately chased busts, vases, tripods, and objects of mere art. On the walls are paintings evidently of a former period, still, however, retaining all their brightness of color and freshness of execution. These are separated by niches with statues, representing, indeed, like the pictures, mythological or historical subjects, but we cannot help observing that nothing meets the eye which could offend the most delicate mind. Here and there an empty niche or a covered painting prove that this is not the result of accident. As outside the columns, the covering roof leaves a large square opening in its center, called the impluvium. There is drawn across it a curtain or veil of dark canvas, which keeps out the sun and rain. An artificial twilight therefore alone enables us to see all that we have described, but it gives greater effect to what is beyond. Through an arch, opposite to the one whereby we have entered, we catch a glimpse of an inner and still richer court, paved with variegated marbles and adorned with bright gilding. The veil of the opening above, which, however, here is closed with thick glass or tail, lapis baccularis, has been partly withdrawn and emits a bright but softened ray from the evening sun on to the place where we see for the first time that we are in no enchanted hall, but in an inhabited house. Beside a table, just outside the columns of Phrygian marble, sits a matron, not beyond the middle of life, whose features, noble yet mild, show traces of having passed through sorrow at some earlier period. But a powerful influence has subdued the recollection of it, or blended it with a sweeter thought, and the two always come together, and have long dwelt united in her heart. The simplicity of her appearance strangely contrasts with the richness of all around her. Her hair, streaked with silver, is left uncovered and unconcealed by any artifice. Her robes are of the plainest color and texture, without embroidery, except the purple ribbon sewed on and called the segmentum, which denotes the state of widowhood. And not a jewel or precious ornament, of which the Roman ladies were so lavish, is to be seen upon her person. The only thing approaching to this is a slight gold cord or chain, round her neck, from which apparently hangs some object, carefully concealed within the upper hem of her dress. At the time that we discover her, she is busily engaged over a piece of work, which evidently has no personal use. Upon a long, rich strip of gold cloth she is embroidering with still richer gold thread, and occasionally she has recourse to one or another of several elegant caskets upon the table, from which she takes out a pearl or a gem set in gold, and introduces it into the design. It looks as if the precious ornaments of earlier days were being devoted to some higher purpose. But as time goes on, some little uneasiness may be observed to come over her calm thoughts, hitherto absorbed to all appearance in her work. She now occasionally raises her eyes from it towards the entrance. Sometimes she listens for footsteps and seems disappointed. She looks up towards the sun, then perhaps turns her glance towards a clipsidra, or water clock, on a bracket near her, but just as a feeling of more serious anxiety begins to make an impression on her countenance, a cheerful rap strikes the house door, and she bends forward with a radiant look to meet the welcome visitor. 
End of section one.